with Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. Syria, Russians put bombers on show to the world's press. Defence Review, Cameron's about to tell us who gets what and how much it'll cost. Trident, is the Chancellor trying to hijack the new one? Cyber geeks in Southampton, bring on the hackers, says GCHQ. And who's banged up in the glass house? We are. Straight away, we need to try to calm them down and let them know that the, the old and dark dinosaur days is long gone. Russia has opened some of its military doors to its operations in Syria. It's invited some journalists to look at the air operation. In two days' time in Vienna, America, Russia, Iran and Britain will be meeting to try and find a way to bring Syria into the transition from war to peace. Well, the BBC's Quentin Somerville is just back from Syria and he's now in Beirut. Good to speak to you today, Quentin. And you've been reporting on this new alliance, haven't you? Uh, just tell us a bit more about it, supported by the Americans. That's right. Everybody remembers that the Americans had a bit of a disaster on their hands. They were training their own local fighters to go in and battle the Islamic State in Syria. They spent hundreds of millions of pounds doing that and then only managed to train about 55 blokes, most of whom got kidnapped or, or, or deserted. So plan B was they noticed that the Kurds were doing a pretty good job in liberating Kobani. Remember that town on the border, uh, the Syrian border with, uh, with Turkey uh, and uh, working alongside Arab tribes, the Kurds were being fairly successful. So they've thrown their, their weight behind a new alliance. They're calling themselves the Syrian Democratic Forces. And in that you have uh, the, the Turkish People's Protection Unit, the YPG and the YPJ, the Kurds basically. You also have Arab tribes and you also have Christian tribes, Arab Christians who are fighting alongside them, all of them working together. It's, it's very dominated, it's much dominated by the Kurds, but working together with the help of US airstrikes against the Islamic State. And how are they getting on? Not bad, actually. You know, we were with them for quite a few days last week. Uh, they'd taken, in the first day of their operation, just southeast of Hasaka, they'd taken about uh, six miles. And since then, they've taken as much as 20 kilometres, they say. They've, they've taken some, some fairly important towns along the way. The interesting thing is, though, that the Islamic State seems to have melted away. This may be a tactical withdrawal by the Islamic State. They've done that in the past, where they, uh, they all leave, they wait, they choose their moment and then they attack again because when you're on the ground uh, with even with the Syrian Democratic Forces it's plain to see that you know they don't have the weapons they don't have tanks they don't have armored vehicles uh, there's no artillery there's no helicopters it's all about ramshackle so if the Islamic State chooses its moment there's always that possibility of a counterattack. Yeah and not so ramshackle is what the Russians have been showing off their military operation what's behind all of this? Well Russia continues to claim that its focus is the Islamic State and it has bombed some Islamic State positions but more, more often than not it's uh, it's the forces who are opposed to uh, President Assad that Russia is targeting. It's done that consistently. We're hearing reports of civilian casualties, of hospitals being bombed etc. Russia consistently denies all of that uh, but it certainly has been a game changer Russia entering uh, that, that battle space and when you speak to, I was speaking to some Kurds and some Christians who were fighting last week and I said, well, where are your weapons from? Are they American? They said, no, we haven't received the Americans yet. Uh, I said, would you take them from the Russians? They said, we'll take them from anyone who will help us. Of course, there's this meeting going on in Vienna on Saturday of foreign ministers. What kind of hope is there for some progress there? Very little hope. Uh, the 
the the main problem is uh, what happens with Assad. Will he stay or will he go? And there's a fundamental difference between the likes of Saudi Arabia even and the United States who are on the same side over what happens to Assad. America believes that he could he could hang around for a bit while there's a transition. The Saudi is is not even tolerating that. Now they are funding the opposition. They're giving weapons to the opposition uh, in Syria. So until they themselves can reach agreement, the chances of there being a settlement there are very slim. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Uh, Christopher, what's your assessment of what's going on in Syria at the moment? Where are we at with it? When uh, when President Assad went to Moscow, uh, if you listen to people like Ospiansky, who does his analysis from Moscow, uh, he was suggesting that they'd not come to an agreement, but he and Putin had discussed at some length the idea of transition with the understanding that there should be an election. And Assad said, I won the election last time. Mm. Putin said it's not going to be as simple as that. Ospiensky's interpretation of that is that two of the guys that could be persuaded to try and take over the leadership were also at that meeting. So that becomes quite significant. When you get to Vienna on Saturday, then still the only, the only reasonable side of it is that the number of people that are involved... And so that is that is nothing more than an occasion. But it's it's almost it's talks about talks which eventually might come to something, but nobody Qu- believes it. Quentin Somerville, having just been in Syria, can you imagine the country with a transition from Assad to some other kind of power? No, the country is the country's still an active war zone, and there's there's no cohesion on either side. And we were in the the, the one part of Syria that you you can, as a journalist, you can enter. Without the certainty of being kidnapped, which is which is which is the northeast, but anywhere else in Syria is just incredibly dangerous, and this huge, massive disruption in people's lives continues. You've seen millions of people displaced there, uh, something like two hundred thousand people killed in this conflict, and there's no sign of any of that stopping. And this is a conflict that's gone on for many years now, and the, the, the level of bitterness and anger over the fact of who is responsible for this uh, hasn't gone away and hasn't in any way been. It's very difficult to end a conflict when you're right in the middle of it. There's another side of this, and that is the Spensky and people like that in Moscow who've got an active reason to to understand what's going to happen. They now start talking about perhaps the only way out is a palace revolution. Mm. Um, and the second part of that, when it comes into the question, say, OK, as part of the transition, there is no transition. That is the important thing. You cannot, for example, hold an election on a rubble site which is the crude way of putting it. All right, and then we'll move on. Quentin Somerville, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Just to to mention, Christopher, Iraq, because different forces there, Kurdish forces, are making progress in a place called Sinjar, a very important place. The importance of Sinjar, in fact, it's it's not so much the town itself, although that is important because it's full of uh, IS. Um, But the importance of Sinjar is the fact that it's a highway, and it, it completes this highway, which is a supply route for IS, and that is extremely important. Now, what's happening at the moment, as far as we understand, is from the heights above Sinjar, the town itself is being artillery, with artillery fire, that's being zapped. And that is mainly, mainly uh, Kurdish forces, um, which highlights the fact that the Iraqi forces are not able to get into their heads in gear to just do something like that. There's a second part of this, and they're getting a lot of close air support from the coalition. 
and therefore there are air attacks that are taking place not by the Iraqi forces but by people like the Americans and perhaps the British and also it is quite likely that parts of the coalition forces which could include the British are actually on the ground directing and helping to direct the, uh, the, the Kurdish attack on Sinjar. Very important. If you can take that, IS almost inevitably will have to withdraw for some time. A report's coming in today about some arrests related to an alleged terror plot against British diplomats, Christopher. Well, yes. I mean, one of the difficulties here is that we've got the supposedly four guys have been arrested um, and that is, is part of an in investigation into an Islamic terrorist plot. And it backs up what the Foreign Secretary was saying last Sunday. And that is at the very moment that he's talking about um, that people are in being, being investigated and they're also being arrested. Uh, and he says that a lot of the time people don't understand that we are actually doing quite a lot. And it's not just a question of going to places like, for example, places like uh, Vienna to discuss great subjects. We're actually having to get on with the hard stuff every day. A big meeting taking place in Malta about migrants. Malta, very important uh, meeting. Uh, the game, we've got 28 countries in the EU. We've got the African Union countries that have gone there also, and they've gone there at the highest level. I mean, France, uh, 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 Germany's uh, 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 Chancellor Merkel is there. David Cameron's there, had to come back for meetings with uh, the Prime Minister of, of, of India. They're pledging to give billions in, in euros to the African countries to try and solve the problems that start the migration towards Europe. Uh, but considering so tackling the, the problem at source, basically. Tackling the problem at source, but considering it was the EU who started the problem in the first place, that's going to be a difficult one to solve. A group of MPs are investigating the military's use of the anti-malarial drug Larium. It can cause side effects in some people, including anxiety, nightmares and depression. But the Defence Select Committee wants to find out if it's an acceptable risk for members of the armed forces to take while on operations. Well, Ellen Duncan is the wife of Major General Alistair Duncan, who was deployed to Sierra Leone in 1999, where he took Larium. He's since been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and he's now being treated treated for severe mental illness in hospital. Ellen Duncan, good to speak to you today. You believe your husband has been badly affected by taking Larium. Do you think the Defence Committee's inquiry will make a difference? I hope so. Um, it's hard to say, really. I mean, they've managed to brush over the neurotoxic damage done by certain things in the Gulf. I hope they don't do that with this case. What did you make of the evidence session on Tuesday? Do you think they're on the right track? Yes, I do. Um, I think that their position is increasingly untenable. I, do, I really don't see that um, operationally they, it's possible to do the stringent testing necessary or now known to be necessary. I believe it's been known to be necessary for many, many years, but only recently has that been really firmed up in um, Roche's when you say the stringent testing, do you mean the individual assessments of the people yeah. before they yeah, take sorry, it? Yes, sorry, I do. I mean the individual assessments. What happened in your husband's case? He had a bad reaction and it was recorded and he was given something else to take. But it would appear, we don't know whether he took both or whether it, because he was so badly affected from the beginning, it would appear he still took it for a further six months. And before he took Larium, were there any signs that there was anything wrong with his mental health? It's difficult for me to say because 
um, we've only been together for the last six years, but my brother has been his close friend and colleague for the last 40 years. And he said, you know, they're, they're obviously, and family have told me that he did come back from Bosnia a different person. Um, so I think he was affected by what he had to see and deal with. I, I think any human being would have been. What would you like to see come out of the Defence Select Committee's inquiry? I don't think this drug... I think the risks of this drug are too high for its use in the military populations, in any population, frankly, but in the military population specifically, because it's, it's dangerous with people exposed to trauma. The drugs sure company the argue that um, you know the risks are small uh, and they outweigh the risks of not taking it. And I suppose in the military you might be deployed at very short notice somewhere. Isn't the risk of getting a side effect from larian perhaps preferable to getting malaria, which is much the, more likely? Doxycycline would be much safer, or malarone. Um, is the risk of what does happen of men throwing their tablets away because of the horrendous side effects any better? Just briefly, Ellen, will you be giving evidence to the Defence Select Committee? And if so, um, what will you say? I'm in the process of putting together a submission, so I'm not absolutely sure. But yes, I will be. If they call me, I will be giving evidence. All right. Ellen Duncan, thank you very much for your time. Sit rep with Kate Still to come inside the glass house, what's life really like inside Colchester's military prison? This is BFBS. Sit rep. So, on Monday, the 23rd of November, just 11 days' time, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, will announce the long-awaited Strategic Defence and Security Review. This is the moment when the services will hear how the UK's military structure is going to change, what equipment it will have, and a fair idea of how much money it will get from the Treasury to do it all. Well, let's talk to Con Coughlin from the Daily Telegraph. Good to speak to you today, Con. At the military, look for the good points and the not-so-good points. What will they hear? Well, I think, actually, as we speak, it's very much in the balance. I mean, I think what we do know, what the big issues are going to be, and the big headline issues are going to be what we do with the two new Queen Elizabeth-class uh, aircraft carriers, whether we... Um, rebuild our maritime patrol um, capabilities so that we can protect the Trident fleet and our submarine fleet from Russian Russian aggression and all that sort of stuff um, and whether we proceed with the new Type 26 destroyers. I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really a question of some very top-end spending, top-end kit, um, which is really sort of focused as much on the Navy as anything else. Christopher Lee, um, this is really two documents, this, isn't it? Yeah, this, uh, the most, I always think the most important document is the strategic uh, assessment. It basically is what the government's been thinking. What do we want to be? What does the United Kingdom want to be in, t in strategic terms? How does it see itself globally? Because once it's sorted that out, in theory... It can then go to the military and say, listen, can you guarantee those ambitions for us? And so I think these documents have to be read uh, together. And when you consider the documents uh, or the document on, let's say, strategic values and strategic ambitions, you then get to one crucial thing which Consort mentioned, and that is the carriers. Because when you've got a carrier, you can have force projection. 
you can take everything with you. You can you can expand your ideas and the defence of those ideas, and that becomes very important. As long, of course, as long as you've got the manpower to actually man these two super ships. One of the big questions, uh, Con, a big issue for the past half century has been Britain's nuclear deterrence. We call it Trident now. Um, but the word from Whitehall today is that the Chancellor is telling the Prime Minister he will only fund Trident, its replacement, that is, if the project is taken out of the hands of the MOD. So uh, a tug of war going on here. Well, yeah, this, this story appeared in a rival newspaper, so we have to take that with a pinch of salt, to be honest. I mean, I think, I think the more serious You say it might not be true, then? Well, I, I think we will <laughs> or see. Or are you just I mean, a bit jealous they got it? I think, I, I mean, historically, and Christopher will know this, historically the Treasury has paid for Trident anyway. Um, so pre- pre- precisely what sort of Whitehall jittery poker is going on at the moment, I'm not privy to. What is, it, what is fairly evident is that the government is fully committed to a like-for-like replacement for Trident, um, in spite of opposition from... Yeah, some within the Tory party, but particularly some quite hostile views from the SNP and the Labour as, as well on Trident. But, um, I mean, the, the key thing is we're going to have Trident. Um, and if we're going to have Trident, then we've got to have the means to protect it. So I, I gather, and I wrote this in the Telegraph at the weekend, the Chancellor's rather reluctant to fork out £2 billion for sort of uh, maritime p- patrol aircraft capability to replace the, the Nimrods. The favoured option is the Boeing P-8 and get nine of those from the Americans. Uh, But the Chancellor, I'm told, is reluctant to do this, which, to my mind, makes no sense. What's what's the point of building uh, a new new nuclear deterrent system if you don't have the means to protect it? Mm, Lots of stories, obviously, coming out in the run-up to to that date on the 23rd. And, Christopher, one of them around today is about uh, the, the recruitment of reservists. Apparently, it went quite well last year. Well, that's what they say, don't they? Um, when you look at those figures, and you're talking of, of increases of 65 and 68 percent in one case, you have to start asking, well, what do you actually mean by reserves? Are they people who are coming out and f- filling places because they have the obligation to do so? Are they people who are strictly volunteers? You know, some like just over 20,000 uh, volunteer reservists. And do you include what was used to be called the old TA, the RNR, uh, and the RF, uh, uh, VR, uh, and that's when you come across the sensitivities um, of the MOD, who at one time, just five years ago, said, well, we're cutting back the army, but don't worry about that, because we're going to have all these reservists. We're going to have these guys, and they're going to be very good, and they're going to back up. Some of them are are people who recently left who were regulars. Well, that's part of what you do anyway. Um, you, you, you have this sort of obligation. But the point is, they say the reservists were going to back up and get into the places. Well, they haven't signed up enough to do that. They're having a rethink, and this is one of the things that, I mean, concert about this, that um, one of the things we're going to see in the, in the defence review is what you do with the reduced number of forces that you created just a few years ago. But you still need almost more than those forces than you needed, say, five, ten years ago. What, how are you going to fill those gaps? And, and the point is, you cannot fill those gaps. Therefore, you start into, you get into this business, and there's a couple of our USI sort of debates quite recently, you get into the business of restructuring. And then you come back to this document, which says, this is what we want to do in the future. Can you restructure enough to allow us to do it? And mm. that's the important debate. Con, Con, there's been a lot of looking over the shoulder since the last defence review in 2010. What do you think will be said about this one? Can you give us an idea of what kind of defence review you think it'll be? 
Well, I mean, I think anyone with any knowledge of the military and, and the sort of global security environment will regard the last one as a complete disaster, not least of all because the security posture that Christopher's talking about predicated that we wouldn't be involved in any major conflicts and that we wouldn't face any, any major threats. Well, we've, since then we've had Islamic State and Russia emerge on the horizon. The Chinese are playing up in the South China Sea's name but three. So hopefully one would expect it to be more realistic. And the good news is that the government has ring-fenced um, spending at 2% of GDP, which means the defence defense spending is now ring-fenced, like DFID, education and health. And it means the military can actually work on the, the assumption it will get a real-terms increase in capital expenditure for the course of this parliament and beyond. So these, these are positives. The big question that people like Christian and my, myself will be looking at is, is this money being spent wisely and is this, the threat assessment okay. realistic? All right, Conkhoffin from the Daily Telegraph, thank you for your time today. The head of GCHQ, Robert Hannigan, says the number of cyber attacks have doubled in the last year. Encryption was once GCHQ territory, but now everyone from major department stores, banks and Joe Blogs on his iPhone use it. And Mr Hannigan says they must. Well, this week, Southampton University's Cybersecurity Research Centre has become a GCHQ Centre of Excellence. Well, let's talk to Professor Vladimiro Sasson from the centre. Good to speak to you today, Professor. Well, congratulations. You are excellent. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much. Yes, we are. Um, cyber defence is harder than cyber attack, isn't it? Do you think the attackers have got the upper hand at the moment? No, I don't think so. I would like to... Uh, first of all, without wanting to sound complacent, to say that uh, we are not we are not bad. We are among uh, the best as a country, together with some key allies, have some arguably some superiority here. Uh, the problem is that, um, um, differently from conventional theatres, it is relatively easy for uh, opponents to catch up. So once a cyber weapon or technique is used in the field, then it can be analysed and reused possibly against uh, their own uh, ideators, by others. And so state agents, crime, crime gangs, terrorist group, individual, all of these people can then uh, uh, learn quite quickly to reuse uh, these tools. So just tell me um, how university students are helping in the fight against terror, uh, cyber terror. Well, in, in no other field as uh, cyber security possibly, uh, it is necessary to form a partnership. Robert Hannigan uh, himself pointed this out, that one of the key things is to develop skills, uh, cyber skills, uh, in partnership, because uh, it's hard from one party, from one branch of society alone, to make real progress. So we formed uh, a Cybersecurity Academy, which is a partnership within the university, uh, some global uh, industries and government. And uh, we all plan to do our bit. University is supposed to bring in the new science. Uh, government to lead uh, the way with regulations and, 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 uh, um, and government. And uh, industry to help us find uh, the route to innovation, to bring our research ideas uh, uh, in, uh, in the real world as products, as security products that can really make a difference. Yes, uh, and you mentioned there, well, government and private companies working together there. Uh, can you trust the private companies? Uh, that's the point. So um, it's a very interesting discussion. Can we trust the private company? 
most of them, yes, but um, some of them really uh, aren't equipped to uh, to do to guard themselves as uh, well as they should. So the government has done pretty well, in my humble opinion, to bring forward this um, set of controls called cyber essentials. You didn't get a nice grant to say that, did you? No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So I think that we, we just run a research at the university to analyze the effectiveness of uh, this new set of controls the, un- the government has brought along. And we can say that with five simple controls, um, 80% of the attacks we have seen in the past two years would have been prevented, would have not happened. So this is quite an interesting thing to do. The point is that uh, not um, enough uh, companies uh, take up these controls, and we are uh, noticing that uh, for some of them, uh, it is still very difficult to uh, verify that uh, the controls are applied in, in a good way. Well, our, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is listening to this. Christopher? Uh, it's interesting. We were talking about earlier on, you wouldn't have heard it, Professor, about the, uh, the defence review that's coming out on the, on, on the 23rd of this month. I think from the draft notes I've seen on it that cyber is going to get, or cyber defence is going to get more attention from that defence review, uh, review than ever before. Have we seen it? We've seen it in three previous defence reviews. And the second part I was thinking is that what you're doing there, you've got what? You must have 500 or so researchers in the, in the, whole, um, in the whole unit, the, the electronics and, and computer science unit. That is the, that's the new generation, isn't it? The people who will be coming up with things that we never thought of and they'll have to come up with it again because the, the cyber hackers or whatever have thought of it. Absolutely. So... Uh you, you point your finger onto the real issue here. There are two aspects of this. There is, there is a, an arm race going on uh, where the bad guys get uh, better and better and learning, even learning from the good guys. Uh, and it is important not to fall behind uh, this uh, arm race and so continue to work to keep the pace with, with the attacks. On the other hand, on a longer term, term strategy, and here is where... Uh, the government uh, has to uh, lead and set uh, the direction. Uh, on a long-term strategy, we need to push uh, for the acquisition of new skills and technologies and the science and understanding that will, um, that will uh, form the substrate of what we have to do to get ahead, once and for all, ahead of the game. So our ultimate aim is to get our systems to be more secure so that it's going to be harder and harder to attack them. All right, Professor Vladimiro Sasson from the University of Southampton, thank you for your time today. Now, have you ever wondered what life is like inside a British military prison? Well, BFBS presenter Liz Mullen has been inside the Glass House in Colchester to make a radio documentary, and Liz is in our studio in Colchester. Hi, Liz. Uh, First of all, we're not really meant to be calling it a prison, are we? No, they don't really like that word at all, any more than the word glass house, probably. But having said that, the, the MCTC does come under Her Majesty's inspectorate of prisons and it was given a largely positive report at the latest inspection and the offences are not things of course in the main that would get you into a civilian prison going AWOL from your job for example and the sentences are therefore generally shorter but this is a corrective training centre with the emphasis on rehabilitation and a fresh start whether you're due to return to service life or be discharged. I spoke to Staff Sergeant Matthew Gorski who's in charge of the nervous newcomers. Straight away we need to 
try to calm them down and let them know that the, the old and dark dinosaur days are is long gone. We're actually here solely to look at their rehabilitation, interaction and just personal reflection and development before they go back to their units or go to a discharge company to be resettled to go into civilian street. So, Liz, the, the programme is called The Glass House Shattering the Myths. What myths have been shattered? Well, I think the myth that it's a cruel, draconian place of punishment. I've had loads of messages on social media this week from people saying what a horrible time they went through in the 60s and so on, how fierce their own father was because he worked at the MCTC and he was the same at home. But this is the point. The attitudes today are different. Not that people should be queuing up to get in, but the senior staff were keen to get over the message that respect is the key word today and they don't see the regime as punishment because the detainees have already been punished by losing their liberty. What, what most surprised you about the place? I think how quiet it was. In between all the marching and the mopping, it is very peaceful, not the place of yelling and bawling that it once was. And I guess the other surprise, the extent of the trade skills, training offered to those bound for civilian life. It's really resettlement with a capital R. And those going back to their units also seem to gain a lot from the experience, as this young soldier was happy to admit. There's a lot of positives to take away from me. I've got a good couple of courses under my belt since I've been here. I've done my um, level two English and maths. That that's something that needed doing. I've done a, a lot of um, alcohol courses since I've been here and thinking skills and stuff. A soldier who's in the glass house, and you can hear the glass house shattering the myths on BFBS Radio this Sunday, the fifteenth of November at one p.m. Liz Mullen, thanks for joining us, uh, Christopher. Why glass house? If the wall, the protective wall, glass, but on the top to stop people climbing out and some of us climbing in. Makes sense, I suppose. Thanks Always very much. makes sense in the Navy. <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our contributors. See you again this time next week. Bye-bye for now. On digital radio, FM, Eddie and satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air. Around the world. This is the fourth...